You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Welcome to a special edition of Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang, and we are live from the City Club in San Francisco, where the Bloomberg Technology Summit is happening. Coming up over the next hour, a wide-ranging, exclusive conversation with Amazon CEO Andy Jassy. His thoughts about the economy, unions, and regulation, plus how his relationship with Jeff Bezos has evolved since he got the top job. And is Uber recession resistant? Eodara Khosrowshahi seems to think so. What he's planning to do to keep it that way if the economy gets any worse. And ARK Invest's Kathy Wood defending her flagship ETF's weak performance, why she says investors should just trust her. Now, I did sit down for an exclusive and wide-ranging interview with Amazon CEO Andy Jassy. We spoke about everything from the economy to unions to the role of Jeff Bezos at the company today. But first, I asked about Dave Clark, who spent more than two decades climbing the ranks at Amazon to become its consumer chief. He resigned abruptly last week and just announced he's joining the logistics software startup Flexport. Here's what Jassy had to say about his departure. Different people want to do different jobs with different responsibilities at different times, and it's incredibly personal. And I think Dave wanted a different gig at this point, and I don't begrudge him at all. I mean, Dave has added so much to Amazon over the last 23 years, and particularly over the last two and a half years, which have been among the most crazy in the history of Amazon. And I, I think that if you want to build a business that lasts 100 plus years and that lasts all of us, you have to get used to these sort of transitions and make sure that you're, you know, you're doing the right succession planning and you've got the right talent to, to um, keep building the business. And I, you know, we've done that historically and I expect we'll do it again. Um, Elon Musk just came out saying he has a s super bad feeling about the economy. Tesla laying off 10% of his staff. Jamie Dimon says he's preparing for an economic hurricane. The World Bank just slashed its forecast for global growth. How do you feel about the economic climate? 
Well, I wasn't planning on giving any guidance today. <laughs> Please. <laughs> but uh, super you know, bad or super I, I, super I think, bad? Uh, <laughs> I think uh, there's some things as it relates to Amazon that are um, useful to remember. You know, I, I think the first piece is remember that 85% of the of the worldwide retail market segment share is offline. And if you believe that that equation is going to flip at some point, which we do, I think it will, it will flip over a long period of time. But if you believe that, you know, the companies that have great customer experiences like we do, I think are going to, are going to do all right. And, you know, and, that, and great customer experiences mean you have really broad selection, low prices, and very fast delivery that's reliable to customers. Yeah, you know, I also think that if you look at different downturns, um, you know, should we have one at some point? And we've been through a few, obviously, in the 25 years that I've been at Amazon. Customers change their habits. You know, they, they tend to be pickier about what they buy and when they buy and who they buy from. And they often pick the partners and the companies that they trust, you know, and that have great customer experiences like the dimensions I mentioned earlier. Um, and so, I, you know, I also think there's, you know, those two reasons, those two factors give me some optimism that even if we have a downturn, that we have the potential to still grow. I would say that regardless, though, we have so many things that we believe we can do better for customers. We have a roadmap that's, you know, to probably three to five years long, and we're going to continue to invent, we're going to continue to be insurgent, and we have a lot of work to do to get to where we think we ultimately can get for customers. Everyone's very curious about Jeff's role these days, what kind of executive chair he really is. He said when he left that he'd focus his attention and energies on initiatives that he really cares about as, at Amazon, but from the outside it looks like he's really focusing on philanthropy, he's focusing on space. What kind of an executive chairman is he? Well, he, you know, Jeff is always going to be um, involved, and um, he has, you know, I, I, I'm, I feel very lucky to have been at Amazon for 25 years. I feel very lucky to have worked directly for Jeff for 20 of them. And we have a, a really close relationship and have for a long time. And I think we share a lot of the same values about customers and um, how important it is to optimize for customers and how high standards they need to be, um, you know, given how easy it is for people to switch and the importance of invention and speed. And so I, you know, I, I just feel very lucky to have had the chance to work so closely with him. We still talk all the time. It's, it's very useful for me to be able to seek his counsel. He did the job for so long. And, and he's always made himself available. So is your relation, I mean, he was your only boss for 25 years, right? 20. Is your relationship fundamentally different? than it was when you were the head of Yeah, AWS. of course. You know, every, every single job you have, the relationship's different. You know, remember, my, the first couple years I worked for Jeff, I worked as what we call his shadow then, which is really like a chief of staff. And that was different than when I was starting AWS, which was different from when we got AWS going. And it was, you know, a business that was starting to do well. And, and it's different when I'm in the CEO role. But, you know, the constant has always been that we have a great relationship and we collaborate really well. And I think that we listen to one another. And, and um, again, for me, to have the ability to bounce different things off of him and seek his counsel is very valuable. And he's still focused on Amazon? Yeah, he still is focused on Amazon, yeah. Um, Amazon is poised to become the biggest private sector employer in the world. Second only, uh, right now Walmart is, is in that spot, but Amazon will probably soon surpass it. First vote to unionize at an Amazon warehouse. I know you've been spending a lot of time at, at warehouses. 
When you look at someone like Chris Smalls, who I think some people look at as this modern day hero who got fired, pulled off this union vote, what's your message to someone like him? Your message to the folks who think maybe we should join a union? Well, I, you know, I think that you know, the first thing to be clear about is that employees get to make that choice, whether they want to have a union or not. They always have had that choice, and it continues to be their choice. And you know, we happen to think they're better off without a union for a number of reasons, um, including the fact that you know it's it's much harder uh, when you have a union to have a direct relationship with your manager and to get things done quickly. So if you see something on the line that you think could be better for your, your team or you or your or, or customers, you can't just go to your manager and say, let's change this. You know, there's a whole process in, in bureaucracy that you have to go through to be able to do that. You know, and, and we get, you know, when there's a union, we're going to get the feedback filtered by what the union decides is worth um, bringing up. And we'd much rather hear from every employee whatever is on their mind. And so, you know, I think if you want to continue to have the structure that we've had for all this time, you have to have really competitive benefits. And then I think if you look at Amazon's, they're very unusual in this space. We championed the $15 minimum wage um, several years ago. The starting salary is now over $18 an hour, which, you know, is, is more than double the federal minimum wage. You get full um, health insurance and 401k and 20 weeks, up to 20 weeks of parental leave. And if you want to get a college education, you haven't had one, we have a career choice program that lets our fulfillment center uh, uh, associates be able to do so. That is a very unusual and compelling set of benefits. And those were all accomplished without a union. So, you know, I think that we realize that we, you know, we have to continue to work on the relationship with our um, our employees, and we need to continue to provide the the right benefits, and you know, we need to continue to work on safety, and and that's our intention. My exclusive interview there with Amazon CEO Andy Jassy. You can catch the full interview at Bloomberg.com. We're going to have much more from the Bloomberg Tech Summit coming up. Jet fuel, price hikes, flight cancellations. What does it all mean for summer travel? Well, Expedia CEO Peter Kern has traveled here. He will join me next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, 
top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome back to the Bloomberg Technology Summit in San Francisco, where we are live from the City Club. Summer is here, but will all of your travel plans come off without a hitch? I am joined now by Expedia CEO Peter Kern, who can help us answer that question. Thank you for flying on down here to Pleasure. join us to today from Seattle. So look, there were a ton of flight cancellations over Memorial Day weekend, jet fuel prices, pilot shortages, hotels, struggling to get enough staff. Yep. How is all of this gonna affect our summer travel plans? Because we've been dying to travel. Yeah, well, clearly everyone's going to travel somehow. I think there will be disruptions. I mean, we're seeing it in Europe, we're seeing it in the US. Obviously, the shortages of staff create a problem and we'd love to see more planes in the air. We'd love to see hotels open to full capacity. But in the meantime, I think people are finding options wherever they go, sometimes vacation rentals, sometimes hotels. Uh, they're finding flights domestically if they can't find them internationally. And, uh, you know, and, and we're seeing just about everything filling up. So I think it's going to be a busy time. Uh, either way, but there will always be issues when you're traveling. Well, Delta just cut capacity, for yep. example, for the foreseeable future. How long does this go on for? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, with the talk that we see on your shows and all the shows about the you know, potential recession, the inflation issues, what the Fed's doing, I think it's obviously going to make some companies be more conservative about letting the rope out and getting more aggressive. You know, we were expecting increases in capacity in late summer for international travel. We'll see what happens there. So, you know, we're hopeful. We, we'd like to see uh, the airlines expand. We'd like to see hotels, again, open to capacity. But, you know, I think a lot of CEOs I talk to will probably watch and wait and will tend on the careful side, which will co continue to constrain supply, keep prices up, which is not great for the consumer, mm -hmm. but you've all seen the prices up. Um, and that looks like it's going to sustain itself for a while. So if Elon Musk has a super bad feeling about the economy, what does Peter Kern think? Well, I'm no Elon Musk, <laughs> but, uh, and I definitely don't tweet about anything. But uh, I would say, you know, from what we can see of the of the U U.S. market and the Western markets where, you know, there's still markets where people can't travel and APAC and that's still going on. But there's tons of pent-up demand. We've seen people wanting to rebound and overspend into travel. They were buying lots of stuff. You had Andy on today. You know, they were buying a lot of stuff through COVID. They underspent travel and they saved a lot of money. And we're seeing that rebound and that savings probably come into spending on travel. So that looks pretty robust for us. Uh, when that runs out of gas and what, you know, the, how the economy lands, who knows? But uh, as we say at our company, that, you know, we're in a multi-trillion dollar market. We're a tiny fraction of it still, as big as we are, so we got plenty of room to continue to grow regardless of the economy. You and I last spoke around earnings about a month ago, and you yep. said, well, maybe we'll see some rerouting from Paris to San Diego. How much of that is happening? You know, we haven't seen it. Again, like, you go to Paris, all the luxury hotels are completely sold out for the huh. summer. Um, so we're not seeing a lot of re-rating down. Mm -hmm. Again, I think people have been planning for this big summer, and they're, you know, they're all booked way ahead, and everything's booked up. I think as that rolls off, we don't know. But we're not seeing a lot of re-rating down to people looking for cheaper alternatives. But could this potentially be delayed to the fall or holiday travel and yeah again no signs yet there's no like magic date out in November where everything falls off a cliff we're not seeing it in terms yeah. of uh, booking ahead but 
you know, we're not making any predictions either. Obviously, there's a lot of noise in the market. There's gas prices and home prices, and we're mindful of that. But again, that's where I think we'll see maybe adjustments to the demand, and, and perhaps ADRs start to come down. You know, prices on air and and uh, and hotels, etc. But um, so far, there's no sign of easing on price, and there's no real sign that demand is shrinking. Well, speaking of pricing, you just added some new technology that enables customers yeah. to track prices to figure out when the best time is to fly. This is something that Google's been offering for a while. Hopper, you can get it there as well. You know, why why should folks choose Expedia? And and in some cases, are you even discouraging people from from buying now? If they no, if, no. What we're okay. really trying to do is give people confidence. One of the biggest issues that consumers face when picking airline tickets is fear that they're picking the wrong thing at the wrong time. They're going to buy too early and pay too much or too late and pay too much. So we're trying to give them predictions because so, we have a lot of data so we can show you what might happen to the price. And we're trying to give you tracking so if, you, if you're not ready to purchase, you don't feel like, oh my God, I have to make a decision. You can wait and track it. And when you feel like it's the right time, you can do it. So what we're doing is really more than just uh, tracking a single flight and a single price. We're tracking a whole route system across all the airlines and saying, OK, if you want to nonstop from San Francisco to New York and you check the price and you're not ready to buy, you can watch it. And maybe in a week or it moves down or up, you'll make a choice. So airlines see it as an opportunity for us to give uh, customers confidence to book, and that's what they want. So what does this all mean for Expedia's business? Obviously, we've talked about the share price. Um, there's a, it's not just Expedia, yeah. but the shares are yeah. down. And you've got this uncertainty around the travel season coming up ahead. You know, what's your... Yeah, what look, do you say to investors? Yeah, we, we don't think about it in short term. We think about it in the long term, and we're not spending a lot of time. I mean, we're obviously thinking about a potential recession, mm -hmm. but we're not, we're not planning for it or, or valuing our business that way. We're doing the work to really upgrade the technology. We've talked about it a lot. We've changed, we're changing the whole stack. We're really innovating around customer experience like flight tracking and other tools to shop more confidently, discover better products, find the right fit and match for you, which we don't think has really been in the travel sector mm -hmm. for decades. So we're focused on that work, and we think that's going to un unleash a ton of business for our supply partners and focused on how that will help our B2B business. So there's a lot of opportunity and a lot to work on, and we're not worried about the rest. What are your summer travel plans? Any plans to live on VRBO? Verbo, excuse I, me. I am planning like to spend a big part of <laughs> July working in London with our teams there and staying in a Verbo. So that's uh, that's my summer so far. All right. Well, thank you for making the trip Hope down Hope you here. take a trip, I, I've got some plans, which Good. I will not show. Okay. on television. Fair enough. Uh, Peter Kern, CEO of Expedia, thank you. Good to see you. Good Thanks to have so you here much. in person. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology, live from our big tech summit in San Francisco. In the world of ETFs, there are few as influential as Kathy Wood. However, ARK Investment Management is suffering a steeper drop in assets than almost any other U.S. ETF this year, and of course Tesla, a big one of their bets. She spoke exclusively with our very own Ed Ludlow about why. If you look at uh, our, our performance, our flagship's performance, from the low in COVID to the peak in February of 21, that was 360% increase. Innovation solves problems. We had a lot of problems through the coronavirus. Innovation solves problems. We were rewarded accordingly. 
since then peaked to trough when we hit our trough thank goodness we're past it down 75 percent why inflation and interest rates so there is this and it's really interesting to be here um walmart territory because i think we're learning a lot from the retailers now and we're talking about what we learned about inventories, inventories right. yes uh so uh the fear of rising interest rates uh, and inflation out of control has gripped the market. And of course, and, and that's the equity market. If you look at the fixed income market, it does not agree with this. Yeah. The three-year, I mean, the 10-year treasury bond yield is 3%. Uh, that, that instrument should be one of the most responsive to inflation fears, right? So 3%, which suggests GDP growth 3 to 4% during the next 10 years. So it's not being corroborated by the fixed income markets. And I don't think, I don't think that we are in an, a period where we can't extricate ourselves from this. In fact, the inventory stories are a very good example of why, of why inflation has become a problem. You know, the scrambling to bring more and more inventory to satisfy demand, stay-at-home demand, went into overdrive. And I believe the narrative in the last year, inflation, uh, gave purchasing managers this idea that, okay, what's the worst that could happen if I build inventories? The worst that could happen is that I'm able to deliver inventory profits, sell at a higher price. Well, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. When we see, I've never seen inventory um, uh, surges like this in my career, and I've been around for a long time. So 33% uh, at Walmart, 42% uh, at uh, at Target, 74% um, at, uh, no, 50% at Kohl's. So very broad-based. Uh, and so I think we're going to see a lot of discounting. And, this, and what's beginning to happen now, just at the margin, uh, and we're seeing it because our strategy is now starting to outperform uh, the, the rest of the market. I've never been in a market where the market has gone to new highs and we are hitting lows. I've never been in a market. So there's been, a, and, and it hasn't been supported by the fixed income market. So we'll see what happens. Oh. Kathy Wood there with our Ed Ludlow, CEO of ARC Investment Management at the Up Summit in Bentonville, Arkansas. Welcome back to a special edition of Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang at the City Club of San Francisco for our Bloomberg Technology Summit, where we've had a host of special guests, including Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi, who spoke exclusively to my colleague Brad Stone about the current economic climate and how it could impact Uber's business. Take a listen. We don't see any signal of a recession coming. Now, what's different about us than most companies out there is that just as you saw during the pandemic, a shift from spend on services to spend on retail, that shift is now going back to services, and we are the definition of a service, right? Moving around, travels back, et cetera. So I do think that our service is benefiting from the shift back. Certainly the reopening helps our mobility business. Our mobility business is growing at uh, very, very high rates highly profitable, the delivery business, delivery of everything at home continues uh, to be strong. Uh, so at this point, we don't see any signal whatsoever. We have gone through recessions in South America, Mexico, and Brazil in the past. And what you see during those recessions is that as a labor pool eases up, 
And certainly we don't see signs of that yet here or in, in Europe. Uh, more drivers come onto the platform. Uh, and as more drivers come onto the platform, the platform continues to grow, service levels get better. So I think versus many other companies, we don't have large, uh, large asset base. Our cost base essentially adjusts. In stronger economy, our, our cost base increases as uh, earners and drivers earn much more money. In weaker economies, as you get more drivers into the marketplace, uh, their earnings adjust as well. So I think we are relatively recession resistant if it happens. I certainly hope it doesn't happen. Right now, the signal on the street is things are really strong and the spend on services continues to be quite robust. Okay, you said you, you'll treat hiring as a privilege and be deliberate up, about the pace, but you didn't mention potential layoffs. And I wonder, because other companies and, and some of your competitors are having to consider it, how, how you feel about layoffs at Uber. Um, we don't think they're necessary at all, right? The perspective at Uber is that in Q1, for example, if you look at our gross bookings, they're up 39% on a constant currency basis. Uh, we are one of those companies, while our delivery business uh, benefited from the pandemic, our mobility business is absolutely benefiting from the reopening. Uh, we talked about guidance of 28, uh, 8 to $29.5 billion in gross bookings in the next quarter, profitability increasing EBITDA $240 million to $270 million. So the business is growing at a healthy pace. However, with the uncertain environment out there, we should be more cautious. You know, there's much more uncertainty as you look forward six to 12 months. Uh, and my message to our employee bases, we're gonna be careful. We feel really good about the business and the trends, but let's not get carried away. And the environment is one that demands caution. And I do think that in a tougher environment, the scale players, right? We're the largest player on a global basis. We're the only player that has the portfolio of go get. We have a platform advantage in terms of our riders uh, turning into eaters, our couriers turning into drivers, et cetera. We have structural advantages over the smaller players. You can catch the full interview with Dara Khosra Shahi, CEO of Uber at Bloomberg.com. Now, turning to the gaming world and the so-called metaverse. In a Twitter poll conducted at our summit, we asked, what will the metaverse have the most drastic impact on? The overwhelming majority said gaming. Joining me now, Anne Han. She's the CEO and chairwoman of Super League Gaming. Good to see you here in person. Thank you for coming. Nice to see so you. So you said something interesting on stage, which is that you don't like to use the term metaverse. Yeah. Why is that? There's a little backlash right now because a lot of people are wondering about this bigger metaverse play that we're really probably five to ten years away from. But metaverse games, or open world platform games as we call them, have been around for over a decade. Games like Minecraft. Games where they give you a set of tools and you make the game yourself. And you invite friends in and so it has creation, collaboration, and most of all it's social. It's really a digital cul-de-sac. And so we focus a lot on how we bring brands into metaverse experiences to reach those gen Z um, players. And I do think the good news is, is gaming is then the Trojan horse for the greater metaverse mm. because it's existed for some time and it's a very successful platform. But you don't see it until five to ten years out. I think the big meta is, is a ways off. It's kind of like the internet in 1995, right? New wild terrain. I mean, the difference about the metaverse though for gaming is that it's so social, it's so community based. Um, and so what's exciting in some ways is the internet failed us in many ways, right? Especially the ad model for 
entered the internet. Um, it became a nuisance. It became disruptive. It didn't fully deliver because it interrupted the user's experience. And what we focus on at Super League is ways to bring brands in that's really engaging and immersive and allows brands to reach this very elusive audience, but meet them right where they are in games and enhance those experiences for them. The big meta. I like that. I the might big, start using yeah. that. The big meta. Okay, so in the big meta, how, how much is our real world self separate from our digital self? Like, are we going to lose track of where we are, who we are? It's a really good question. I mean, on one hand, you can always worry about some of the security concerns and the blurring of those lines. But when I think about the younger generation, and we talk to them, and we talk to their parents, I actually feel that there's more positives than negatives. First of all, Gen Z does not see a difference between their digital and physical life. It's just their life. And they do want their, their digital selves and their physical selves to align to the same values and interests. And you know, this is the way I look at it. I talked about it a little bit earlier in the summit today. You know, a five-year-old picks their Minecraft ID, and the world hasn't yet boxed them in or made any decisions about who they're going to be one day. So their aspirational self comes through. And maybe that means that they feel more limitless in their physical life as well. So I think there's just as many positives to, to establishing your digital self. Um, instead of it being an act, um, as, as older generations might do, okay. it's more of a genuine interest in what they want to be. Now, Sheryl Sandberg, longtime COO of Meta, just yeah. resigned this yeah. week. And she's leaving in the fall. And you know she would have had to evolve this very long-standing business model for the metaverse. Yeah. Is advertising the business model of the future in the metaverse? And will it really translate? Well, you know, I think it's just as much the digital to physical crossover, mm -hmm. right? Like when you were interviewing, you know, Andy Chassie earlier today, and he talked about 85% of retail still happening physically. Mm -hmm. Imagine if a brand can get to a, a young person in the metaverse, engage with them, either because they're an existing customer or because they're a new customer, and then the ways you can create crossover. So I think it's actually more than anything an acquisition and retention channel. So are you saying maybe I would make fewer bad online purchases because in the metaverse maybe I'd get to try stuff on well, before I buy it. There will certainly be a game for that where you can try on all of your fashion and have your friends react right and get real-time feedback but you know think about things like if you have a gaming avatar and right now you buy for that avatar say a pair of Nike shoes or a Gucci cape your propensity now to want to bring that brand into your physical life is much higher and so it's actually a very affordable accessible way for brands to get to to know a new batch of consumers. What company or kinds of companies are going to own the metaverse? Oh gosh, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see and the role of crypto throughout all of mm. it and blockchain as well. Um, I think right now it's going to continue to be gaming led and so look for those big players like the Microsoft who owns Minecraft, Roblox, Epic who's now opening up their Unreal Engine as well inside Fortnite. Okay. Look for gaming to continue to lead and I think what I'm excited about is the next place where gaming will lead and I think that's around education and being a new entry point for kids to learn about STEM. All right, Ann Han, Super League Gaming CEO, good to see you here Thank in you. person. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Okay, coming up, rethinking the pivot to crypto. What Coinbase's hiring freeze means for workers that flock to digital assets. That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology Live from our flagship technology summit. As crypto, we're talking crypto now, became more of a hot commodity, workers rushed to careers in digital assets. But with Coinbase announcing a hiring freeze and crypto markets roiling, some young employees are rethinking that pivot. Joining us now, Michelle Baye, partner at Sequoia Capital. Michelle, good to see you here in person. Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's talk about what's happening in crypto. Coinbase's hiring freeze, it certainly doesn't look good. What's happening in the industry right now? Yes, so the thing to remember at crypto is there are always ups and downs. It's a very volatile sector, especially before we get a better regulatory framework in place. But Sequoia has been investing for 50 years in a lot of market cycles mm -hmm. and is no stranger to the cycles in crypto. So the thing to remember is, you know, founders in this space expect ups and downs and every company is different. So I work very closely with FTX. Mm -hmm. Sequoia is a proud partner there and they are not doing a hiring freeze. They are, you know, well capitalized and ready to take advantage of this period. So there's a huge range in the way companies are reacting to the downturn in asset prices. And long term, we are still very optimistic that the best companies will actually extend their advantage and come out even stronger. So would you say that in the case of Coinbase then there was a mistake in execution? They grew too fast? You know, I mean, I this think, is a big public company now. Yeah, I think... Less big than it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Many public company CEOs, you know, Sequoia works with companies, seed through public. So right. many public company CEOs have had to deal with their stock price changing and a market that valued growth pivoting to one that valued pro uh, profitability. So this is a change many people are going through. I think the important thing to remember, though, is that crypto is very diverse, and so mm -hmm. there are a lot of companies very well positioned who are not struggling uh, to make quite an impact on the future. So, and obviously Sequoia has a huge portfolio and you've got workers moving between companies all the time. Do you see employees rethinking, oh, should I go to a crypto company or maybe I should stay at Apple or Google for a little while longer? 
Yeah, we see actually quite a valuable market in the talent market for startups. Uh -huh. So we think one positive of this period for the startups that play their cards right is that they'll actually be able to hire talent they probably wouldn't have been able to before. And so in, in many ways, this loosening in the talent market could be very beneficial for those leading companies to you know, stack their staff and their teams with top talent from these companies. So we're pretty optimistic, actually, that those companies will be able to succeed, even if there's some near-term shift happening. So if Sequoia could send that RIP Good Times memo now, like at this moment, what would the headline be? Uh, I think we gathered our founders earlier uh, this year to talk about how to deal with this downturn and how to plan for it. And the key message was adapting to endure. Mm -hmm. So what we've learned through so many cycles is that you know, focusing on R&D and extending your product advantage is one of the most important things you can do during this time. And so really capitalizing on this to put yourself ahead of your competitors while also potentially trimming in other areas depending on how you've been running your business are the most important thing. And so so we think the best companies can come out stronger, but they have to survive long enough to have that chance. So where is Sequoia placing its crypto bets now? Where do you see the most opportunities for growth? Very similar areas. So our conviction is very unrattled <laughs> by this. Uh, you know, honestly, it's really the same. Uh, on a 10-year horizon, we're hoping that crypto can grow from the millions of users into the billions. And for that to happen, we're investing in a broad number of areas from infrastructure to financial applications to internet applications that are based on blockchains. And so we're very excited, especially about the infrastructure and developer tools that we're seeing that will help more companies be able to build more resilient, safe and more secure applications. All right. So does it matter if Bitcoin gets back to 60 in your view or you know doesn't the price doesn't matter. Long term we're not investing for the prices of the assets. We're investing behind the founders and the companies. So FTX for instance that we work with is a great example. They're building an exchange that we think could be a, a really uh, amazing product for crypto derivatives markets. And so whether the price goes up or down, people are still trading and that's a founder, you know, it's a perfect example of what we look for with an incredible founder great market opportunity and so the price doesn't matter as much it's really the long-term yeah. business that we're excited about okay michelle baye partner at sequoia great to have you thank you thank for sharing you. your view of the future thanks so much waymo is clearly a leader in the autonomous space uh, and this is actually a pretty deep partnership with waymo uh, where we now have, uh, we're going to have access to billions of miles driven uh, as it relates to their autonomous driver. Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi there speaking at the Bloomberg Tech Summit about a new partnership with Waymo. And of course, remember, these two companies were bitter rivals. Uh, so how did it happen? I'm joined now by Waymo co-CEO Takedra Mawakana. Takedra, great to have you with us. I know you just ran from the stage. So uh, thanks for... Let's talk about how the partnership is going to work. Yes. You know, in the future, does this mean Waymo trucks on Uber's network? Yes. So we, Waymo, will partner with carriers and shippers, and they will have trucks with the Waymo driver on them. Yeah. Our fifth generation driver is what we're using right now on Daimler trucks. And then those trucks, shippers and carriers, will have the opportunity to opt in to the Uber freight network. And, you know, paint the vision for us. Yeah. These are trucks that are taking anything you can imagine, crisscrossing the country, the world. Exactly. Long haul trucking. So massive long haul truck 
across, say, Tucson, Arizona to Houston or Dallas to Houston. Major, major shipment of goods across the country. And the reason this is so important is we've reserved the capacity for billions of miles on this network because we believe, as two companies, that we can improve the efficiency of how goods move. So Uber and Waymo, long ago rivals that date all the way back to Travis Kalanick, the co-founder of Uber, and Anthony Lewandowski, co-founder of Google Car. Like, how did you get past a really long and drawn out lawsuit? You know, I'm really happy to say that the Waymo Via team and the Uber Freight team have focused on what we actually are here for, right? Which is improving road safety, improving this long haul trucking and logistics opportunity. And Dara and I have, from the beginning, had a really good sort of upfront direct relationship, which I appreciate. So let's talk about how far Waymo has come because I rode in the Google car in 2011. Yeah. And just a couple of days ago, my colleague Tom Giles rode in the Waymo yeah. of today. How much has that experience changed in 11 years? This was this is 2011. <laughs> yeah. That's today. Yeah, this is today. Yeah. So today we have the fifth generation Waymo driver, which is what you see on the all-electric iPace. Here in San Francisco, we have employees who are taking rider only, which means no human behind the wheel, rides. And we have members of the San Francisco community taking, uh, well, also taking rides as trusted testers. In addition, we've announced that we are expanding to downtown Phoenix where the same vehicles there and our employees are taking rides. And we've also started uh, having employees take rides to and from the Phoenix airport, mm -hmm. which is really exciting because it's the first time that any autonomous vehicle company is figuring out how to navigate uh, an airport. So, and I know we, I ask you this every time we talk, but I guess the real question is, when can I, in a major city, open an app and hail a Waymo? So, right now you can, in the Phoenix metro area. <laughs> Right, and you're doing limited <laughs> testing in San Francisco, but when does this become yeah, yeah. more available? Mainstream? Yes, available. So I think you know what we're really focused on is what does it take to go from one city to now three geos, one platform to now across multiple platforms, yeah. and that's what we've been able to do. One of the things we've learned in doing that is it's operating a service that's actually the learning curve, right? Yeah. You've got to learn how to not just make sure the technology works and is safe, but how do you delight the riders? What does that experience look like? And so one of the areas that we've found wonderfully delightful is when people are using ride hailing and there's no driver in the car, or no human driver in the mm -hmm. car, the Waymo driver only, they immediately start casting their music. Right? Those kinds of features are what allow people to come back and feel like this is their third space. So the question you're asking is, what's your roadmap? And I'm not telling you that, but what I am telling you is we're spending time learning a lot. And in Phoenix, Phoenix metro area, our service has been up and going almost two years now, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and those riders continue to make it a valued part of their So lives. what's going to differentiate a Waymo from a self-driving Tesla, from a Zooks, from, you know, there are all a bunch of different companies, Aurora now working on self-driving technology. Yeah, I think you'll have to see what those companies are really focused on, that really important first step, mm -hmm. which is getting to removing the driver. Yeah. As we all remove the driver, and we've done that now a couple of years ago, then you figure out what your value proposition differentiation is going to be. I have no idea what theirs is going to be. <laughs> I just know what ours is. How about regulators? How much progress do you really think you're making on getting regulators comfortable yeah. with the safety of yeah. this? 
So the safety is really the focus of the federal government. And so right now it's largely a permissive framework where companies have the opportunity to submit a safety report. Um, there hasn't been a lot of detailed movement at the federal level. The state level, there has been, and we, you know, our teams work with all levels of government. At the state level, as we're even seeing here in California, the states, both legislators and regulators, are trying to figure out how best to advance this technology while doing so safely. How often do you get to ride? I love to ride. So when I go to Phoenix, every time any family member says they're going to be there, any friend, I try to go yep. and take a ride. And then, of course, now that it's right here in San Francisco, I do rides often. And are you, like, taking notes and sending them back to the team? <laughs> of like, course. Here's what of we course. Need to take. Yes. All right. Of all course. right. All right. So, so let's say five years. Where's five Waymo? years out? Where's Waymo in five years? In a lot of cities. Mm -hmm. um, How many? Like it, 10, I don't know. 12, 12, okay. I don't know. In a lot of cities. And also, you know, we have ride hailing. We also have the Class 8 trucks, so our trucks will be on roads, moving goods safely. Um, and then we have local delivery. And so, you know, your meals, your groceries are hopefully coming to your house in a way much. <laughs> is this going to go global? I mean, definitely. Okay. We're focused on. Is there a market that is more exciting than another internationally? <laughs> There are a lot of really exciting international <laughs> markets. Right, because but the question nothing. is, how does this scale, yeah. right? Yeah, I think that's right. And we're really, we're in the early days of focusing on that right now, scale, you know, and operating across three geos mm -hmm. and two platforms is the beginning of learning what you have to do, all the rails that have to be laid in order to do that. Takedra Mawakana, co-CEO of Waymo. Great to have you here Thank in you person. Thank you so much. I need my ride. It's been 11 years. I'm coming to you for that. Yes. Okay. Uh, and that does it for a special edition of Bloomberg Technology at the City Club in San Francisco. We've had some fascinating conversations, amazing guests, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy, Ubers, Dara Khosrowshahi, Michael Meebach, the CEO of MasterCard. You can catch all of that at Bloomberg.com. And we've got a great show lined up for you tomorrow. Ariana Huffington will be with us and George Kurtz. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.